If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Support for Green Dreamer comes from our Green Dreamer planners that you can check out at greendreamer.com slash shop, as well as our listener patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this independent show starting at $2 per month by going to greendreamer.com slash support, sharing your favorite episodes with friends, or leaving me a rating and review in the podcast app. I read them all, they warm my heart, they keep me going, and I really, really appreciate your support. So thank you so much. Financial independence doesn't even really exist because... All that money really allows you to do is become dependent on people you don't know instead of being dependent on people you do know. And this is why rich people are often very lonely, because it means that nobody in your life is indispensable. If you have difficult times with someone, you can just replace them with someone else and pay them your money instead. That was Sean Chamberlain, the author of Surviving the Future, Culture, Carnival, and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy. He's also the founder of Dark Optimism, one of the first Extinction Rebellion arrestees, and the executive producer of the film, the sequel, What Will Follow Our Troubled Civilization. This conversation was so powerful. There were so many aha moments that I had throughout and even upon re-listening to it again and again during the production process. So I think it's definitely one to bookmark and revisit. We talked about things like why the pursuit of endless economic growth is fundamentally incompatible with supporting continued life on Earth, what it means to recognize the different layers of reality that people exist in today, namely the reality of economics and politics and the reality of physics and the environment and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I mean, I think for me as a, as a child, the forest was always where I felt safest, actually. I think it's strange. I think in our culture, a lot of sort of fairy stories and things talk about the deep, dark, scary forest. But for me, it was always sort of the opposite. It was the place I felt most most at home and, and you know, related to, to trees as beings. And I think I think any activist in the broadest sense of the word probably has something that's 
that's their drive, the thing they come back to that really builds the fire in them. And for me, it's it's the ancient forests that are being devastated. To me, as I say, as a kid, I felt like those forests kept me safe. And now these incredible life forms are just being decimated. And, and still, even as they die, they're still producing all this wonderful oxygen and, and clean air and clean water and all the things that they do for, for life on Earth. And it just... Yeah, that's kind of the deep injustice that kind of hits me in the gut and and probably motivates a lot of what I do. So since 2015, you've devoted yourself to exploring the dominant cultural stories and myths that chart the course for our society, and in particular, how we might change direction before we end up where we're currently headed. To see a dominant, widely accepted cultural story as a myth, you, of course, have to first invalidate these truths yourself about the world that we've been so deeply indoctrinated. So I'm curious, how did you come to this realization that we have these unlearnings to do? And what do you see as some of the most prevalent and perhaps dangerous myths that exist in our modern society today? Yeah, well, actually, since 2005, it was 2005 when I quit my job and threw myself full time into this. The most glaring, (laughs) the most glaring problems with the kind of stories our culture tells us about what's important is that is that we're killing everything, <laughs> you know, over the last, over the last 50 years, we've killed 60% of the mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians on the planet, like not, not wiped out 60% of species, but there are 60% fewer of all those creatures on our planet now than there were 50 years ago. So they've been killed and, and not replaced. And that's so, so transparently unsustainable as a trajectory. But we sort of seem to forget that, that if something's unsustainable, it's going to end because that's what unsustainable means. And so I think that's the fundamental thing is the recognition that's sort of grown in me over the past couple of decades that, you know, I'm not someone coming out there saying, you know, everything has to change. I'm saying everything's going to change one way or another. Like either, either we radically change direction or we end up where we're headed and both of those look nothing like today. So one way or another, we're on the cusp of this, this huge change. And yet, as you say, these, these, these narratives, these cultural stories tell us quite the opposite. They tell us that this is a sort of stable way of life and society that we've been born into and that we'll die as part of and our children and grandchildren will have a chance to continue as part of. And the things that we're supposed to really value are things like financial independence, for example, which is held up as this desirable thing or even obligatory thing that we should achieve in our life and if we don't achieve that then we're just a sponger or a parasite but it's it's a complete myth like the more you get into it the more you you follow that path that's laid out for us in sort of mainstream culture in the in the richer minority world where i was born the more unsatisfying it becomes and you realize that financial independence doesn't even really exist because even if you've got enough money to pay your rent or your mortgage and, and, and buy your food and all the things that you do, you're not actually independent in any meaningful way. Like someone else still built your house, someone else still grew your food and delivered it to the shop where you bought it. All that money really allows you to do is become dependent on people you don't know instead of being dependent on people you do know. And anyone who's been in a time of real financial struggle has found that the thing that keeps you alive in such circumstances is friendships and relationships and and relying on people and that actually in those times when we when we rely on each other that's when the strongest relationships of our life are built because financial independence and this is why rich people are often very lonely because it means that nobody in your life is indispensable if you have difficult times with someone you can just 
replace them with someone else and pay them your money instead. Our whole society tells us that the most important thing we can achieve is financial independence. And yet that goal is miserable, lonely, illusory, right. <laughs> and leads to the devastation of life on earth because everyone's pursuing that goal without any awareness of the wider path that our culture is following without wanting to get too deep into economics you know this leads to this kind of economic growth culture and and this dependence which politicians feel they absolutely have to defend and we're in this this real awful dilemma as a culture now whereby either we end economic growth which genuinely would lead to economic collapse because our our economic systems completely depend on growth or we don't end economic growth and we continue growing to the point where we absolutely destroy the ecological systems on which our life completely depends. I mean, you talk to economists and they'll tell you that the economy needs to grow at around 3% a year, which sounds fairly modest. But if you actually look at the mathematics of that, growing at 3% a year means doubling every 24 years. Can we really imagine that there's a sustainable future in which in a couple of decades time, there's twice as much economic activity, twice the oil extraction, twice the intensive industrialized agriculture, twice the manufacturing, twice the pollution. And then another 24 years into the future, it doubles again to four times the size of today's economy. So, you know, that's so transparently impossible. And yet, even though it's that transparent, even though it's that straightforward, it's just arithmetic. Nonetheless, it somehow re remains respected mainstream opinion that we should just keep growing and sort of quietly cross our fingers that nature will will somehow keep bailing us out. And so it's no surprise if that's what our economics is doing, that the the kind of scientists and ecologists and naturalists who are studying what's actually happening in the natural world are sending out these desperate alarms saying, you know, everything's everything's failing, everything's dying, everything's getting overwhelmed because even something as super abundant as the natural world can't indefinitely support basically an exponentially growing parasite. That realization, as it's grown in me, to get back to your original question, has made me see that the the stories our culture tells us about what's what's important are fundamentally flawed. I mean, you, my my late mentor David Fleming put it beautifully. He said, "Civilizations self-destruct anyway, but it is reasonable to ask whether they have done so before with such enthusiasm <laughs> and in obedience to such an acutely absurd superstition." I mean, it's just so obviously untrue. And yet, because it's dominant in our culture, it's kind of heresy to question it. And that's, I think, why we're seeing things like Extinction Rebellion emerging now, because we're in this strange situation where everyone wants to claim that they're a realist, but we've got realists who kind of have loyalty to two different realities. On the one hand, you've got the economic and political reality, and people say, well, I'm realistic. I don't think that can really change very quickly. Mm. On the other hand, you've got people who are studying the physical and ecological reality and saying, well, if we're realistic with regard to this reality, then politics and society has to change incredibly dramatically. And they're sort of standing on either side of this huge divide in realism, shouting at each other, saying, we're the realists. No, we're the realists. At some point, we have to decide which reality we owe our allegiance to. And there's no there's no question that if we don't reconcile these two realities, it's physics that's going to pull rank. You know, physics doesn't negotiate. You can't just say, oh, well, we'd like to continue with our current economic system, even though it's physically impossible. Now, these cultural myths, do you think that we've co-created this as a collective? Or do you think that some people fabricated it and 
that's how it became so deeply ingrained into our society. Hmm. Uh, a bit of both, I guess. I mean, that ties in a lot to our media and the fact that there are certain people who have vastly more influence over our cultural narratives than others. The likes of Rupert Murdoch spring to mind who control these great media conglomerates that in many ways define what kind of consensus reality is. I mean, I was thinking the other day that advertising plays such a huge role in this because we're constantly bombarded by adverts to buy this car or buy that car or buy the other car. And you might go, oh, well, I'm not really affected by those. You know, they just kind of wash off me. But at the same time, they do set a kind of norm. So nobody actually asks the question, well, is it really appropriate to buy a car that buys petrol at a point where climate change is threatening life on Earth? If you ask that question, you're a bit of a nutcase over here because everyone else is talking about which car to buy, right? And nobody ever made any rational argument about the question, is it actually reasonable to buy a car at this point in history? But just by having a continual pounding of the question of which car you should buy, that becomes normal. And the answer to the question of whether buying cars is appropriate just gets kind of assumed. And anyone who even asks the question becomes this kind of out there nutcase. Crucially, we don't have to accept it. I mean, that's the key thing. Like even if we were we were raised in these cultural stories, even if we were encouraged to accept certain values and aims and achievements, when they ask you to achieve something, is it for them or for you? <laughs> like, is it actually leading to the future that they that they claim it's going to lead to? They claim that we're on the way to kind of, I don't know, Star Trek and exploring the stars together. But actually, that's profoundly implausible. And what it looks like we're on the path to is devastating life on Earth and leaving misery for those who come after us and those who live alongside us. I have a friend who says something wonderful. He said, you cannot not change the world. If we personally decide to accept the most mainstream status quo down the line, do what they tell you path in life. Well, that's the kind of culture that we're helping to reinforce and recreate. But if we get more imaginative and more creative and tell something more beautiful and inspiring, that's the kind of world that we're trying to create. And ultimately, ultimately, we're responsible for our own lives. And regardless of how big the media megaphone is that's shouting in our faces, we can do a lot better than just than just listening to them. For a solid part of your career, you got to work with the late Dr. David Fleming, who was a visionary thinker and writer who played significant roles in the genesis of the UK Green Party, the Transition Towns Movement, and the New Economics Foundation, as well as chairing the Soil Association. I would love for us to hold space here to honor him and his work and invite you to share some of the most profound ways that working with him had changed you at the time and how your perspectives on the world changed through your collaboration with him? The key thing about David's work for me is that he he lays out, especially in um, a book that was that I brought to posthumous publication after his death, called Surviving the Future, Culture, Carnival and Capital in the Aftermath of the Market Economy. He lays out the most grounded, compelling vision of what a post-economic growth society could look like, and not in a kind of, I'm a brilliant man who's had this brilliant vision of how society should look kind of way, mm -hmm. but much more as a historian as well as an economist. He looked at, well, how did human societies function and thrive for the hundreds of thousands of years before the market economy and economic growth? Because unfortunately, they've been around for a couple of hundred years, which has been just long enough for us to sort of forget our cultural memory of how that worked. You know, none of our parents or grandparents remember that anymore. To summarize one of the best books I've ever read, which I hesitate to do, but to try and pull the essence out of that. Essentially, he says that in the absence of growth, there are two things that people rely on to thrive. One is nature, of course, which is 
that which supports all other economic systems. And the other is friendship, is people, is each other. And as, as I mentioned before, every time we fall on hard times financially, we find that we naturally fall back on our relationships. And the same functions at the kind of societal level. And one of the things that's really beautiful about David's most optimistic vision for how our future could be is that because that kind of emotional closeness and trust and community and solidarity is so critical to a positive future without economic growth, the thing that conjures that into existence is culture, is play, is is the arts, is drama, is music. And so it's amazing to read this book written by someone who trained as an economist, although only to kind of challenge mainstream economists, okay. that it's so much focused on the beautiful things of life rather than numbers and maths and you know all the all the tedious stuff that economists normally talk about. All of his work is fundamentally about culture and community. And of course, if we look to the older human cultures on our planet, the indigenous cultures on this planet, which in some cases haven't been completely decimated by the spread of the uh, sort of majority culture, the globalized culture, that's how they live. They live much more communally with much more play and art and joy and storytelling in their lives. That's how humanity lived for most of history. And so that's what I found most inspiring about David's work, I would say, is that he he shows us in some ways not so much look out how much we could lose, but more look what we've lost already and what we could regain if we do things right. Because we're in this this really strange situation at the moment where the mainstream culture has record rates of suicide and depression and mental illness. And yet we're destroying the natural world in order to sustain that system a little bit longer. I mean, it's pretty clear that we can do better than that. In a preview to your recent film, the sequel, What Will Follow Our Troubled Civilization, you say that our globalized world finds itself caught on the horns of a seemingly impossible dilemma, either seize growing and so collapse the economy on which we all depend, or continue to grow until we overwhelm and destroy the ecosystems on which we all depend. End quote. This just very beautifully sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. I think it's really interesting to note that our modern society has developed this obsession with economic growth and GDP. But it's also important to remember that this measurement is entirely a human construct. It was created by Simon Kuznets in 1934, when he, the inventor, also warned that this cannot be used as an indicator reflective of our societal welfare. Just back to the very basics, I mean, in what ways do you think this fixation on economic growth dismisses the things that are truly important to people and our life quality and well-being? And what illusions has this obsession created for us? Well, I think economic growth is seductive because it can be quantified in concrete numbers. <laughs> you know, it's countable. And it's really tempting. Life is such a mysterious nebulous confusing thing that it's really nice to have the idea that you might be able to just keep score you, know? right. <laughs> you might be able to go like am i doing well am i not doing well well i'll look at my bank balance or i'll look at the economic growth of my country and that'll just give us a definitive mathematically rigorous answer right and i think that's tempting to a, a certain mindset i think we can all sort of relate to that on some level but of course as everyone knows the really the really important things in life aren't countable i think somebody said not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts. David Fleming actually once said to me that economics is this incredibly beautiful edifice of incredibly elegant mathematics, all built on 
a few completely misguided premises. <laughs> it's like a sort of inverted pyramid where you've got this wonky bit at the bottom and you've built this huge edifice on it, but the, the foundations are completely flawed. I think I've already talked a lot about where that's led us and where that's leading us. I mean, it's leading to the complete overwhelm of the natural world in which all life on earth depends and the life which for most people is pretty miserable where people are working really hard at jobs that they hate in order to earn money to buy stuff they don't really need to impress people they don't really know to pay off a mortgage that's going to last for most if not all of their life i mean mortgage is a fascinating word as a as an aside you know mort means death and gauge means grip so a mortgage is literally the grip of death wow <laughs> that, that that pretty much sums uh. up um what being in debt for the majority of your life feels like and that's what economic growth essentially demands I mean, I've over the last couple of weeks been participating in the Extinction Rebellion protests here in London. And one thing I've been hearing a lot that sort of troubles me from fellow activists is this sort of disgust at humanity, I guess, you know, looking at what humanity is doing. It's completely understandable to look at what humanity is doing to the natural world and, and be disgusted by it. But I think it's really inappropriate to point that disgust at humanity per se. I think that disgust needs to be pointed at this culture and this economic system because there are, there are humans on this planet who know perfectly well how to live in ways that sustain the ecologies of which they're a part and, and are joyous and wonderful. The danger of thinking, you know, I hear comedians talking about humanity being like a virus. And I think The Matrix, one of the, the Agent Smith in The Matrix talks about humanity being misclassified as a mammal and actually being a virus. And this kind of idea is spreading in our culture. The danger of that is that if we believe that it's human nature that's the problem, then the disgust that we feel turns into self-loathing because mm. we're humans. And if we think, oh, God, well, if humanity is just a virus, then I hate myself. And you hear it a lot from sort of critics and environmentalists too, who say, oh, well, if you think that, why don't you just go kill yourself then? It's not true that humanity is the problem. The truth is that this culture is the problem. This economic growth-based system is the problem. And it really suits the powers that be for us to turn that disgust into self-loathing rather than what it should be, which is a huge desire to change that culture and to change that system and to create something much more beautiful in its stead, you know, something much more imaginative and, and creative. And that's certainly what I want to, or what I have devoted my life to doing and why I find David Fleming's work so beautiful because he absolutely lays out what kind of a future we could have if we make different choices and not only how much better it will be than where we're headed, but how much we could reclaim of the of the joy of life. As he says, it's it's modern economics that puts the grim into reality and he wants to create a world in which there is time for music again. I think it definitely feels a lot more liberating to see this as a brokenness within the systems that we've created and the culture that we've created, rather than it being inherently a part of our human nature to be destructive. Definitely. And if it were part of our human nature then we would have to wait for genetic evolution, which takes a very long time. But it's not. It's part of our culture. And so what we have to wait for is cultural evolution, which can happen incredibly quickly when there are tipping points in a culture. And that's actually a really hopeful thing, is that we don't need to change our genetics. We just need to change our culture. So, I mean, at this point, continually, we still have this obs obsession with economic growth. We hear it all the time. 
in the language of politicians. But while our economies may have grown, the reality is that people's life quality may not have improved. We know in the United States, lifespan has actually gone down in the past three years. As you mentioned, youth suicide rates globally are increasing. Chronic illnesses are increasing. Obviously, we're continuing our environmental destruction. Do you think that we're more likely to collectively see through this illusion of endless economic growth? Or is that paradigm shift so difficult to create that perhaps all we can do is attempt to strike a balance between our deep-rooted desires to keep growing the economy with our recognition that we still need to preserve some of our ecosystem so that we can even live? Well, there is no balance to strike because the economic system is dependent on endless economic growth, which is fundamentally incompatible with the natural world. I mean, in nature growth comes to an end. You know, we, we grow as children and we our gardens grow and we like growth. Growth is a good thing. But then we reach adulthood and we stop growing. Then a tree reaches its full height and it stops growing. The only, one of the only things in nature that grows and doesn't stop growing is a cancer. So growth is a good thing when it's within limits, when it has a mature state. Unfortunately, without going into all the technical details, our current economic system cannot do that. As David said, it's like a bicycle. It's only stable when it's moving forward. As soon as it stops, it, it topples over. So this economic system is doomed one way or another. We either, we either continue to the bitter end and it collapses along with the ecosystems that support it and the whole thing falls apart in the most painful way possible. Or we preempt that by bringing growth to an end earlier than that and dealing with the very real difficulties of doing that. But the longer we kick the can down the road, the harder and the worse it's going to be. So there really isn't an option of a middle way here. In a sense, there's only one option. The only one option is that the, the system of economic growth ends. It just will sooner or later because that's the only physically possible outcome. It's a bit like a trip to the dentist. You don't really want to do it because it's not very nice. <laughs> but the sooner you do it, the less bad it's going to be, right? Right. <laughs> that's the situation we're in. So either we face an inevitable economic collapse because it's going to happen or we preemptively make it happen earlier so that the the impacts may be less devastating. Yeah, because the because the natural world will be less devastated and that's what we're going to be relying on completely or continue to rely upon completely. Also our networks of friendship and reciprocity will be less devastated too because for various reasons the financial economy tends to undermine community and and friendship and sort of turn every relationship into a sort of monetary transactional kind of a relationship. There's a fantastic writer called John Michael Greer who coined the phrase, collapse now and avoid the rush. Mm. <laughs> so it's about, it's about preparing for what's inevitably coming. And part of the beauty of the situation we're in, and there is some, unfortunately, <laughs> is that regardless of whether we see our work as trying to preempt and avoid the crash, or whether we see our work as recognizing that it's coming and preparing for it, in many ways, the things that we need to do, whichever viewpoint we come from, are pretty much the same things. They are defending and regenerating nature, rewilding nat natural reserves, protecting what's there, and protecting and regenerating our communities and, and relationships and our, our informal economy, as David puts it, the, the non-monetary economy, the, the economy that actually still does most of the work in our society, that still raises all our children and, and does all our 
cooking at home and teaches us all how to speak and all of that stuff is not yet monetized and probably never will be even as the monetary economy tries to find its way into every corner of our lives but yeah it's protecting and rebuilding the informal economy of, of friendship and relationship and then and, and nature that's the critical work to do now regardless of whether it's whether we see it as preparing for a crash and, and what's going to come after the sequel or, or whether we see it as just trying to make this this way of life a bit more uh, a bit more pleasurable and a bit more yeah with a, a bit more of a view to leaving a, a future worth the name well taking this forward with us on your website dark optimism which is the home of your nonprofit work and writing you say we are unashamedly positive about what kind of a world humanity could create and unashamedly realistic about how far we are from creating it today end quote when you think about this big picture of where our humanity is headed, do you think we're more likely to preemptively bring about this or come to terms with the fact that the economy cannot continue growing and therefore soften the blow? Or are we more realistically going to face economic collapse? And in all of this, where can we find that piece of optimism about our potential to change this trajectory? Honestly, I think we're headed for collapse. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, again, to go back to David Fleming, that was something that was so striking for me about meeting him 15 years ago was that he was convinced of that then. He'd been sort of banging his head against the wall of trying to get society to pay heed to these issues for decades by the time I met him. His dictionary for the future and how to survive it, out of which I edited the book I mentioned, Surviving the Future, the starting point for that work is, okay, there's loads of things we should do, but we're not going to do them. And we're headed for collapse. So what can we do now to prepare for that, to make that less bad than it would otherwise be and to be ready for what comes after? I have to say there's still part of me that kind of thinks, oh, but maybe, you know, maybe we'll have this great turning to sanity and it'll be. But honestly, I don't really believe in that. I do find that in my work, in my life, the only things that really make sense to me, that really excite me to work on are things that make sense in both of those scenarios. So that if there were some great turning to sanity, I'd feel like I played my part in it. But nonetheless, there's a lot of things that people work on that only make sense if that happens. And that can be quite dispiriting if you secretly in your darkest corners of your heart don't really believe it's going to happen. <laughs> and so I think the optimism is in working for those things which make sense in either scenario. And as I say, that comes back to rebuilding and sustaining nature and rebuilding and sustaining community. The ultimate optimism, the, the sort of deepest level of my dark optimism, if you like, is that despite all the irreversible damage that has been done to the natural world and continues to be done and will likely continue to be done for some time yet, there is absolutely nothing about these times that prevents any of us from telling a story with our lives that we're proud to tell. For me, if there's a meaning of life, that's it. That's all anyone at any point in history has ever been able to ask is, can I find a story to tell with my life in these circumstances that I'd be proud to tell on my, my dying day. Absolutely, we can do that. And doing that feels just as great as it's always felt throughout history. That's what life's for. So there's no reason to be depressed. I mean, in fact, there's a really interesting thing about despair, which is that despair is looking at every possible outcome and thinking that it looks bleak. Then you only need to see one possible outcome that looks positive to have immense motivation to drive towards it. And so it's really interesting that even in despair, there's this sort of spark of motivation hidden under the blackness. And I see an awful lot of beautiful things that we can do in the world that we live in today. And I get really excited by waking up each day and working on them. 
And finally, where do you see our role as individuals? So if we're going down this path that is going to inevitably most likely lead to economic collapse, not in the preventive way or not preemptively to soften that blow, where does that leave us as individuals? And how do we support the changes we need to be able to ultimately support the regeneration and the birth of a new reality? I think as individuals, I often go back to quotes. I have the kind of brain that quotes just go in and stick and especially ones that I really need to hear stick really hard. And there's one that for years now I've not been able to get away from, which is by a guy called Howard Thurman, who was one of Martin Luther King's mentors. And he said, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Mm. Because what the world needs is people who've come alive. And I challenge myself that with all the time. I so easily fall into asking what the world needs. But I believe that Howard Thurman was absolutely right when he said that. Because the soul of us, the bit of us that that falls in love, that, that I mean, for me, dancing is my favorite thing in life. And the part of me that just comes alive when I dance. I couldn't give you a rational justification of why dancing is the most effective thing I can do to create the world I want to live in. But on some level, I know that it is. I know that it's in- incredibly sustaining for me. I just know that it's the right thing to do. It's when when you're really in the zone as, as people who love art will recognize it's not, it's almost like it's not you dancing, it's the universe dancing you. <laughs> and that makes me come alive. So at no point have I ever gone to dance and thought, oh, well, I should really be writing a peer-reviewed paper or you know, a book <laughs> or whatever. I just know that's the right thing. And I think the part of us that knows that is a lot wiser than our brain. So for all the analysis we can do about what's the most important thing to do, that would be my one piece of advice as an individual. Ask what makes you come alive. And do it honestly, because you might say, oh, well, wait, what makes me come alive is you know driving my fast car and flying around <laughs> the world. Well, Okay, but I think if you really sit with yourself and ask, do I feel completely comfortable with that on all levels, then maybe not. I mean, if you do, great, do it wholeheartedly. I mean, I I really, really mean that. Like, I think one of the great shortcomings of environmentalism, for want of a better word, is that it's got this reputation as being full of killjoys, people who wouldn't know how to enjoy themselves in a vegan chocolate factory. Part of the reason for that is this constant sort of battle that a lot of environmentalists have in themselves, in ourselves, between self-sacrifice on the one hand of going like, oh, well, I really want to fly on holiday, but I know that I shouldn't, so I'm just going to stay home and be miserable. (laughs) Or on the other hand, guilt, because they're like, oh, I really want to fly, so I'm going to fly, and then don't really enjoy it because they're feeling guilty about doing it the whole time. And both of those are really miserable options. There is a better path, which is let the two voices in you talk to each other. So the part of you that wants the thing and the part of you that doesn't want the consequences, let those parts talk to each other. And I find universally they fairly quickly come to agreement. I mean, I haven't flown now since 2002. I had to tell a lie. I've I've flown once since 2002 for a family medical emergency, and I have absolutely no misgivings about that. That was a totally wholehearted choice. And I have absolutely no misgivings about the fact that other than that, I haven't flown for 17 years because that's the story I want to tell with my life. Like, the time when I quit, I was invited by my then girlfriend to fly to California, where she's from, and visit the Great Redwoods, which is the one place in the world that I would most love to visit and never have. But I'd been learning about the climate impacts of flying, and I reflected very deeply on this, and I thought, actually, that isn't the story I want to tell with my life, that I flew to see these great living beings and in so doing contributed to their death. 
that doesn't feel like the person I want to be. I sat with that until I had a wholehearted decision and then I took that decision. Then it's just a joy. It's not a sacrifice at all. It's just telling the story I want to tell with my life. And so genuinely, you know, if you really sit down with flying and go, yeah, like I feel about flying the way that Sean feels about dancing and it really is the right thing and I have no misgivings, then I totally support you in doing that. But I personally found that when I sat with it, that wasn't the case. And so I think we need to do a lot less lecturing and a lot more living wholeheartedly. And when we do that, you were talking about what nourishes and sustains us in this work. For me, that's it. Like being wholehearted in our lives, not doing the thing that we ought to do because we're responsible, good people, but doing the thing that we love and that tells the story we want to tell with our days. Because, you know, what could be more nourishing than that? What could be more beautiful than that? an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? The Overstory by Richard Powers is a book which I read earlier this year and is the best thing I've read in such a long time since I read David's Dictionary, actually. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? You cannot not change the world. What's one thing you're working on right now for your health? Taking on less. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our world? I guess promoting our film, the sequel, what will follow our troubled civilization and yeah, all the work that's been put into that, helping it to reach more people and have more positive impact. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world right now? (laughs) Ah, that part of us that knows the truth, that part of us that takes us dancing, the joy in all of us. And if we follow that joy instead of following an economic system that puts the grim into reality, then the world would be a much more beautiful place and it would have a much more beautiful future. Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Sean's work, you can head to www.darkoptimism.org and you can also follow him on Twitter and on Facebook at Dark Optimism and on Instagram at Dark underscore Optimism. I'll have all this linked in the show notes as well that you can find at greendreamer.com. Sean, if our listener would like to learn more about you, check out your film, your books, etc., what final call to action do you have for us? Well, yeah, go to darkoptimism.org. On the front page, you'll find a pinned post with links to all the various things I get up to. There's a mailing list there that you can sign up to to stay in touch with all that I'm about. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing this deeply insightful and thought-provoking conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Be more selfish. (laughs) Uh, Not in the sense of at the expense of others, but in the sense of widening our sense of self 
to include more of the world because we're so interdependent and do what really, really makes you come alive, not what they tell you should make you come alive.